0: You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Hello everyone, Randall Gilmore here. In this episode, I'll take a closer look at yet another critically important detail about the beast out of the sea, and his rising to dominate the world. And I think you'll find this interesting because it will show yet another tie to ancient paganism, as well as to the overarching epic account of the Seed of the Woman. Now making known the story of the Seed of the Woman is the deep why behind the Gospel Story Art Project. As you often hear me say, it's your story, too. And one of the reasons for saying this is because the story of the seed of the Woman hasn't ended yet. It's a story that continues for now, as we serve the living and true God, and as we wait for Jesus' return. So our lives are very much a part of this ongoing story. Your life is very much a part. Which means that the story, and I'm not just talking about the summary that we lead with for evangelism, but the story in all of its details. The overarching story of the Seed of the Woman is meant to shape our understanding of the world and our place in it. So if you'd like to know more about the Gospel Story Arc Project, visit GospelStoryArc.org. The Gospel Story Arc Project and this podcast are made possible because of the generosity of listeners like you. So remember, it's your story too. I'll take a quick break and return in just a moment with yet another critical detail about the beast out of the sea from Revelation 13. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and his great authority." Now, you already know from previous episodes that all the emphasis on heads and horns and on diadems and various animals to describe the beast out of the sea, all of these details tie the beast out of the sea to world government. But at the end of verse 2, John writes something else that we must not overlook. And it bears repeating now. He writes, And to it, the beast out of the sea, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. Now, you've heard me mention this part of Revelation 13, too, numerous times throughout the podcast. But I want us to take a closer look. And one of the details that stands out is the mention of Satan's throne. This is actually the second time in Revelation that John refers to this royal seat of the devil. The first is back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, where Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, quote, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum is located in modern-day Turkey, so Jesus identifying Pergamum as the place where Satan's throne is, has led many Bible teachers to conclude that modern-day Turkey will significantly factor into end-time events, specifically into the beast out of the sea rising to world domination. But there's something else that also stands out about Satan's giving the beast his power and throne and great authority. Because as we continue in Revelation 13, it becomes obvious that Satan's gift, I'm using air quotes as I say the word gift, it becomes obvious that Satan's gift comes with lots of strings attached. So Satan's gift wasn't really a gift at all. It's more like a deal he strikes with the beast. The deal of the century, I call it. A deal that gives the beast out of the sea Satan's power and throne and great authority in exchange for the beast redirecting the world back to Satan to worship him. But it's also a deal that calls us back to one similar that Satan tried to make with Jesus in the last of the three temptations he presented to Jesus in the wilderness. Two of the four gospel writers describe Satan's offer. Here's how Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him, that is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Satan offers Jesus a deal that's very similar to the one he ultimately strikes with the beast out of the sea. But Jesus absolutely refused to make the deal. Instead, according to Matthew, Jesus responded, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus' refusal to accept Satan's offer is part of what made one particular accusation against him, coming from the Pharisees, so outrageous. An accusation tied to Jesus casting out demons as he healed and restored people from their suffering. The Pharisees accused Jesus repeatedly of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, early on, Jesus didn't respond to such nonsense. But the last time the Pharisees leveled their outrageous charge, Jesus said this, according to Matthew chapter 12 Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, it's not my intention to provide a full on exegesis of these verses, but I have to say this Jesus casting out demons. And the healings he performed were not because of some deal he made with Satan. They were meant instead as miraculous signs of his identity as the promised Messiah King, the seed of the woman. It's why the miracles prompted ordinary people, according to Matthew, to respond to Jesus with amazement and to ask, Can this be the Son of David? The Son of David turns out to be one of many titles that belongs to the seed of the woman tied to his role as the Messiah King, orchestrating the restoration of all things someday. And when that day finally comes, demons will be vanquished, and the curse of all kinds of pain and suffering and death will be lifted. Through Jesus, all the blessings of the heavenlies will penetrate into this realm in epic and permanent fashion. So Jesus casting out demons and healing people the first time he came, was meant as a foretaste and a witness of what will happen someday when he returns. But the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with that possibility, that Jesus was indeed the Son of David, the seed of the woman, and so they slandered him with the worst possible slander. But where did they get such an idea? Well, the short answer is that it came from the evil that lived within their hearts. But you should know also that some brands of paganism, have long held that the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the enmity first mentioned as part of God's promise to send the seed of the woman, some brands of paganism have long held that enmity would be resolved, not by the seed of the woman warring against the seed of the serpent until he crushes the serpent's head, but by the two joining forces, and even by their becoming one person instead of two. It's an outrageous claim that harkens back once again to pagan corruptions of the story of Noah and the Flood. Here's how one commentator explains what happened. He writes, The great end of Satan was to obliterate from men's mind the awful event, that is, the Flood, which sorcery, violence, and corruption had brought about. And though he, Satan, eventually succeeded in this, as Peter's second epistle assures us, In the days of Nimrod, That was an utter impossibility. In other words, Satan recognized right away the pivotal nature of the flood and of the role it would play among future generations as a true story of God's deliverance of the righteous and his judgment on the wicked. But there wasn't much he could do about it at first. The facts of the event spoke for themselves to the earliest descendants of Noah and his sons. But by the time Nimrod came around, the same writer says, quote, Satan found a way to pervert the lessons which God had inculcated, that is, implanted, in the family of Noah. And so, the commentator continues, the corruption developed from the spread of several false claims. First, that the serpent in Eden was actually a divine messenger, and indeed the instructor of man. The second claim, that the world had been destroyed by a flood and would be again, by a similar catastrophe. And the third claim, that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman ended their enmity by their union at the flood. Now, were the Pharisees aware of these types of ridiculous claims? Well, who knows? But because of claims like these within paganism, Jesus had to experience Satan's tempting him to make a deal, followed by his rejecting that deal, to show that the enmity between him and the serpent lived on. And that it would never be resolved by the two joining forces or by their merging into one. It would be resolved only by Jesus defeating Satan and crushing his head. And so Jesus had to show the separation between himself and Satan. And his rejecting Satan's offer did just that. Now, before going back to Revelation 13, I need to share just one more observation from the Pharisee's slander And rejection of Jesus in Matthew 12. It's that Jesus did everything he could to persuade the Pharisees they were wrong and to warn them of the consequences of their unbelief. He argued, for example, against the logic of their slander. And he asked them to consider that others among them, their sons, sons of Israel that is, had actually joined with him by faith in him to cast out demons, and that their association with him was intended to give witness to God's kingdom. And then he warned that what they were doing was not just rejecting him and his testimony of God's kingdom, they were also rejecting the testimony of the Father and of the Spirit of God, the very Spirit by whom Jesus had actually performed the miracles. And he warned that their rejection would not be forgiven, that they would be held accountable for their words against him, words rising from the evil that lived in their hearts Now, the same evil will live in the hearts of people worldwide on that day when the beast out of the sea makes the deal with the dragon that Jesus refused. A deal that gives him the beast out of the sea, the dragon's power and throne and great authority in exchange for the world's worship. Followed by the beast redirecting that worship to Satan, Revelation 13 verses 3 and 4 tell us, One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, no one really knows for sure what's meant by one of the beast's heads seeming to have a mortal wound, and the mortal wound being healed. Whatever it is, as I just read, it leads to the whole earth marveling. At the beast out of the sea and following him. Which according to the rest of Revelation 13, the whole earth continues to do throughout his tenure, even as another beast, the beast out of the earth, joins the beast out of the sea and begins using power and influence of his own to the same end. By the way, the word translated marveling in reference to the beast is the same word that Luke uses in his version of the events of Matthew 12 To describe people's reaction to Jesus when Jesus performed the miracle leading to the Pharisees' accusation. So, once again, whatever it means for the beast to receive a mortal wound that is healed, the whole earth will marvel at the beast in the same way they once marveled at the miracles that Jesus performed. They'll even craft a meme to express their wonder. Who is like the beast, they'll say, and who can fight against it? It's a meme adopted by everyone. Everyone, that is, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now this explains why no mercy is shown to those who worship the beast, the very ones who ultimately receive the mark of the number of his name. Like the Pharisees of old, their embrace of the beast reveals their rejection of Jesus and of every part of his story. And they reject it because of the evil that lives in their hearts. And because they have no association whatsoever to the Lamb who was slain and to the redemption found in Him. But what about those who do refuse to worship the beast? What will the swelling tide against them look like? And who is this beast out of the earth that becomes an advocate, an enforcer for the beast out of the sea? More next time on Seed of the Woman.